Listening to Death by DVD. I am your host, the Linus Fitness Center. Harry is away this week. He's busy putting mascara in his moustache. So I'm here in his stead uh, with my colleague, Mr. James Ellis, the Weeping Tudor of Weeping Tudor Productions. How are, how are you tonight, James? I'm good. How are you? It's a pleasure to be back in, uh, in Bristol. <laughs> yes, it's it's a Welsh takeover. This is an American free zone tonight, <laughs> and I'm, 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 <laughs> and and we're not talking about any horror films. So switch off now, I guess. Welcome or or, or continue for uh, Death by DVD's least downloaded episode uh, tonight. It being nearly Valentine's Day, we have uh, two films which are kind of romantic. Um, but our initial thinking was uh, to discuss some films featuring the music of the late great Angelo Badalamenti, who sadly passed just before Christmas. Um, now, the obvious thing to do would be to do a couple of David Lynch films, but uh, but Harry and Nash, I've already covered that ground. So we dug a bit deeper into uh, Mr. Badalamenti's catalogue. And the lesser-known work. Yes, and uh, James came up with uh, the two films that we're uh, going to discuss tonight. James, what are they? Tonight is The Comfort of Strangers and Secretary. I, I did... Um, I'll just... Let me just put this in. When um, I found out about Badalamenti... Uh, Passing, I sort of had like a splurge of like um, looking into this his film canon of all these films. I didn't know he did the soundtrack for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Hank told me that's regarded as like a classic American Christmas film. I, I have heard of it. Did enjoy it. Had a nice time, though. Apparently the soundtrack has never officially been released. Uh, City of Lost Children. I managed to watch that. That very eccentric, uh, bizarre, surreal French film. A Late Quartet was a um, a film he Badalamenti was also involved in. It's more so about Beethoven, uh, one of Beethoven's Late Quartets. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Christopher Walken. Um, we have some connections tonight. Christopher Walken, Catherine Kinnear, and a very sort of um, almost very bitchy take on um, classical music. It's a that would be a nice companion piece to Tar, the most recent film with Kate Blanchett as the conductor. 
Comfort of Strangers I also watched, and Autofocus. I won't say much about Autofocus. Hank has covered that um, that road, I think, quite extensively in previous videos. But yeah, those were the uh, the six films with Bad Lamenti scores that I watched just after um, finding out his, about his death. So those were the six films I watched after finding out about his passing. So I've been was I was particularly busy um, boning up on uh, the lesser known work. We all know the Lynch stuff. We all we could have very easily spoken about Lynch, Twin Peaks, and things like that. But you know, I think some of the discoveries tonight some are very stimulating, and I'll hand back over to to Linus. <laughs> <laughs> What would you say uh, generally is your favourite Bad Elementary score? You can say a Lynch film. I think most of the Lynch stuff is is up there. I don't. I, it's difficult to choose. A lot of people would say Firewalk with. I'd say Firewalk with me. <laughs> I think Blue Velvet's very strong. The mystery, you know. I think let's not, you know, with the elephant in the room is. I think also Julie Cruz also passed last year. Yeah, I was sat in a cafe in London when I found out, and sort of a, I was very upset. I instantly played um, the world spins. You know that defining moment in Twin Peaks when we find out who essentially is the killer. Um, it's tough. That's a tough choice. I think that the whole scope of Twin Peaks, you know, hours and hours of music. Oh, it's it's such a tough... I'd probably say, I think because there's so much of it, it's probably Twin Peaks, the series. And the later return, I think the return also had some very pretty, juicy bits of music. There's that wonderful piano music he writes in that scene with Dougie and the cherry pies. We could talk about yeah. the return for four hours, but we won't. Mr. Jackpot. Uh, hello! <laughs> um... Yeah, I somehow, I'm not classically trained, but I was actually able to learn the Laura Palmer theme. Some of you might have seen my uh, my video of it. Um, I learned through MIDI, MIDI files. It tells you which keys to play. And uh, the interesting thing about learning that piece is when the the main bit comes in at the middle this is this isn't very musically academic talking talking like this, but in on the left hand, when you play, the um, the bass line, it, you could almost turn it into a tango. I don't know if I told you this, because it's dun, 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 and it's dun, 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 dun. You could, it's the tempo. It's the tempo of a tango. That's something I only learned actually playing the piece, and I had a wonderful time learning it. Don't ask me to play it now, because it's completely left my uh, my mind. But yeah, every time there was a, there was a piano, I always, shall we... Um, raise up the spirit of Laura Palmer and that wonderful piece. The Laura Palmer theme is incredibly strong of Bad Lamenti. Um, I think Harold's theme is also a very firm favourite of mine, that um, beautiful synths hero. And Josie, Harold's theme, Josie's past also, that um, that's, a, that's in the top three for me, that music as well, when um, Hawk comes in to see Harold as unalived himself you know that, that really really got to me the first time i saw it and um there's so much in, in twin peaks alone that i could pick but definitely laura's theme harold's theme and josie's pasta and, and so josie's pasta <laughs> josie is it spooky pasta <laughs> spooky spooky pasta and 
Josie's Josie's in the knob. <laughs> There's there are hours of music. They only released a lot of the music from Twin Peaks proper a couple of years later, and it goes on for two hours. Yeah, the <sighs> um, that was they did the Twin Peaks archive releases, didn't they? Which uh, and there's so many beautiful. And there's that beautiful um, sort of choir arrangement, not, you know, for synthesized choir, of Laura's theme, when you see the home video of her dancing with Donna at the picnic. That's one of my personal favourites. That's like 30 seconds. Just, yeah, any time Laura's theme is in it, which is quite a lot. I mean, take a shot any time Laura's theme is played and you will be blindingly drunk by the end of the evening. But um, the ma- I, I, I can't get over um, Bad Lamenti. I just think that there's such... As we're going to discuss tonight, there's such a rich variety and generosity to his music. Um, the music for um, oh, the straight story. The straight story is th- that usually gets forgotten. Is another um, example of a very good soundtrack. I would say you know it's that folksy, beautiful guitar and very touching keyboard and. And oh, I think people forget about the straight story. That's also one of my favourite scores of his. Actually, I, I might lean towards the straight story if there wasn't so much breadth of Twin Peaks. Yeah, well, for me, it's Firewalk with me because it's 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 kind of Twin Peaks and then some with the sort of dark jazz element added to it, and then you've got the. Uh, the pink room which i remember a friend telling me was the thing that made him want to play music and i i have to agree he's uh he often described that uh, all he wanted from being in a band was to play in a smoky club wearing a cowboy hat playing that bass line which i might insert here <laughs> My introduction, I think, as a ch- uh, to Firewalk with me was as a child. I'll I'll explain that. Um, <laughs> I'll explain that um, context. But actually, the I think a lot of people know. A lot of people would know the Pure Moods album, and the theme from Firewalk with Me is in Pure Moods. Yeah, yeah, an iconic. Uh, you know, Tubular Bells. The X-Files remake. We should probably explain this was a CD compilation of, I don't know, what would you call it? Sort of... Uh, Trance and... Sort of, hmm. yeah, sort, of, sort of ambient and new age tinged remixes and stuff from TV. I vividly remember, I think it was either 1996 or 97, being in Florida and the actual advert came on for pure moods and I turned to my dad and said dad can we get this he's like well we're on holiday we wouldn't be able to and of course I was quite upset then of course I realized shortly after it was available to buy in the UK and yeah it's one of my like earliest memories I think of a CD trying to think what else is on it there's an X-Files remix (laughs) Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence that wonderful theme ah that was my introduction to Firewalk with me years before getting into Lynch years before the Twin Peaks um, nebula, I'd say. The non-Lynch scores that Bad Lamenti did, I would say that The Comfort of Strangers is the most interesting and the most impressive. Certainly uh, one of the most beautiful and grand-sounding, I would say. Like I, 
um, a lot of sort of Morricone influence, especially like Morricone scores of the 80s where he got to Hollywood and uh, was working on a bigger scale than uh, he might have been in Italy. You'd think it was a Scorsese film. It's like near operatic Puccini, Verdi. It's, it's near that sort of realm. Yeah, well, that that's not that surprising, I guess, because Schrader being the director and being uh, um, a Scorsese alum... to the films <laughs> which one are we going to do first we're going to do uh, chronological yeah, comfort, of, um, comfort of strangers directed by paul schrader um what made you pick this uh when did you first see it and uh what did you think uh i discovered the comfort of strangers probably only a couple of nights after badlamenti's death i scoured through his wiki to see what films could be watched what films were available um, it piqued my interest as the script was by Harold Pinter, the great British playwright, and the novel was by Ian McEwan. I'll, I'll just drop a quick synopsis for uh, um, before we go on. Um, an unmarried married couple, uh, played by Natasha Richardson and the cemetery man himself, Rupert Everett, are on vacation in Venice and befriend a mysterious local man played by Christopher Walken, who ensnares them into his games of psychological and sexual manipulation. Soundtrack-wise, this this sees uh, Badalamenti in a more sort of blue velvet mode. Um, this is almost sounds like Badalamenti doing Morricone. It's a very sort of big, rich, um, Italian-sounding score um, with a lot of arabesque, moments and as far as the the plot goes now it being set in venice and given the subject matter um a uh a, a suggested alternate title popped into my brain and perhaps it could be called don't cuck now perfect pairing film don't look now absolutely i was thinking maybe death in venice but maybe that maybe that's not for valentine's uh and don't look now is <laughs> well, I suppose it's kind of tragically romantic, isn't it? So I got to say, L- L- I asked Linus uh, a few days before, what did you think? And he, Linus respectfully said, spoilers. So I thought to myself, well, I mean, I, you know I've enjoyed this film because I wouldn't have picked it. I mean, that that's debatable, but I'm itching to know your opinion uh, of this film. Uh, Fucking bollocks, mate. I don't believe it. I'm oh, no joking. No. <laughs> it, it's it's touch and go with Linus. He he can like the most shoddy. <laughs> well, well, look at him. Don't don't insult the dead studio audience, man. Like, you know, know your audience, dude. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it. It probably I could have done with another watch, but you know. Unfortunately, there's just so much Ultraman and so little time. I think it's a very strong film. I think it was, for me, probably one of the biggest discoveries I made last year. I think it, I think it's a fabulous film. I think that the second viewing marginally gave me more 
than the first viewing. What I did notice is, on second viewing, there are a few scenes, you know, these wonderful shots of Venice and the piazzas and the, the churches. You do see walking, walking <laughs> in the background. It is, you know, as a video game reference, it did remind me of the G-Man in Half-Life. Because you do, there are moments in that game, games, where you do see him. And watching the film again, you do see walking in his white, you know, his his linen suit. You see his figure in more than you think you do, and that that that's one of the uh, stronger mo. That's one of the reasons to rewatch it. Uh, walking gives a phenomenal performance. It's it's his own weird, wacky self. It, it it's incredibly disturbing. Critics said he did so little with the material, but it worked. Yeah, well, we should sort of elaborate a, a little bit. Um, it starts out with Walken um, giving a monologue about his father being a big man. I was with a couchsurfing host the other night, and we were quoting Christopher Walken, you know, two mice fell into a bucket of cream, catch me if you can. The couchsurfing host had never heard of the quote from Pulp Fiction. He put it his father's why, he put it up his ass, his father's watch. I was stunned. If this was a better-known film, that opening monologue would be quoted all the time. No, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to clap then. That quote... <laughs> That would be quoted a lot more. Yeah, I mean, well, there, there's a lot of uh, quotable Walkenisms um, throughout. Um, yes, I think the film is it, it particularly good whenever he's on screen. The film begins with uh, Walken giving a monologue in voiceover, which he later repeats um, to the characters when he encounters them. My father was a very big man all his life. He wore a black moustache. When it turned grey, he used a little brush to keep it black, such as ladies use for their eyes. Mascara. Everyone was afraid of him. My mother, my four sisters. At the dining table, you could not speak unless spoken to first by my father. But he loved me. I was his favourite. Natasha Richardson and Rupert Everett are a sort of bored couple, sort of um, wondering what to do uh, with their relationship, whether they continue and take it further or just fuck it off, quite frankly. Um, uh, wandering sort of um, vacuously around uh, Venice, um, or they get lost and they bump into... Uh, Walken in in his sort of handsome devil mode. He then takes them to a bar, which later transpires to be his. Um, <laughs> they then tells them some bizarre stories about his father and his sisters and how he, how he met his wife um, on exit in the bar, um, possibly having been uh, drugged by Walken. They exit the bar and. and uh, and pass out in the street, having I mean, not do. not been able to find their way. There is that moment where Walken turns to one of the barmen. He does that hand gesture, and, yeah. he, and the barman repeats it. Yeah. I there's, a, there's I think there's a lot of you know we've spoken about some queer aspects of other films um, that I've you know we've discussed with the podcast. It's this could feel very thinly veiled. I had a feeling that the bar was almost a gay bar, but then it, it didn't feel like a gay bar. Um, Walking sort of, you know, the 
the conversation about Rupert Everett potentially being gay and, you know, using derogatory language. Sorry. This film is an enigma, and I think that's due to um, Schrader, the filmmaker. Pinter. Harold Pinter as a screenwriter is... um, well-known for writing very sort of half-truths, you know. I think the the common Pinterisms are moments at the beginning where they're sort of half, the characters are half asleep and they're, they're, they're feeling woozy, sat on piano. Yeah, certainly um, Pinter's written the leads to be sort of sulking around Venice, sort of completely self-absorbed, sort of not really enjoying this their environment or particularly each other until they encounter uh, Walken and then later his wife, played by Helen Mirren. Well, as I was saying in sort of synopsizing earlier, potentially Walken drugs the pair and and they spend the night asleep on the streets of Venice and then go to a cafe to sort of recover before going back to the hotel and then by coincidence, probably not on coincidence, bump into Walken again and he invites them back to his place where they meet his wife, Helen Mirren, and uh, spend the day sleeping off their hangover at his um, lush, very much looking like a set uh, villa. Um, uh, Yeah, and then from their interactions, then they they become equally as vacuous, but a bit more sort of interested in each other in a very sort of... uh, uh, surface level kind of way. Everything's very calculated. I think that's the uh, the decisions of Walken's character. I think I get the feeling he's done it before, but he has killed, maybe killed people, but not so sloppily. The policeman says you left your fingerprints well, on hey, the razor. No, got to that yet? <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, I mean, come on. This is a, this is. But we're, we're gonna do spoilers. I mean, I, I'm bouncing because my notes are, are haphazard. But I before we get to spoiling the shit out of it, you're telling people to watch this film, yeah? Without a shadow of a doubt, it's on the Criterion Collection. It's available to watch. I thoroughly recommend it. Okay. Um, <laughs> are you going to say are you going to say more or no, no? Um, Rupert Everett is an interesting actor. I wouldn't say I'm not the most barnstorming actor ever, but I found myself. You know, we're going to talk about you know queer, queer stuff. Everyone in this film is looking at Rupert Everett. And so am I. <laughs> so am I, because, I mean, Giorgio Armani did the costumes for this film. And, then, you know, the, the moment he comes out in that shirt, you can tell that shirt was tailored the fuck out of it just to, to match his quite elongated sort of physique, which is quite unusual. He's got a very lovely neck as well. Um Yes, and this is remarkable. This is such a fascinating instance where it's not the woman that's being objectified and, and dare I say, targeted with like a, you know, a shutter shot. It's the man. It's the man in the relationship. And that really kind of got me, kind of really got me viscerally for some reason. And I'm... Yeah, so so skip into the end. Walken has been targeting the the couple and stalking uh, Rupert Everett in particular. Um. And initially, the attention that the the couple receives, although a little bit weird, especially when Walken punches him in the guts for in, for insulting uh, the amount of keepsakes he has in relation to his dad. The, the couple seem to get off on the attention they're receiving from this other couple and the way they think other people must be looking at them. 
and it seems to sort of give their relationship a bit of a spark. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Wilkins a little bit more weird than that, <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically wants to murder the guy while he bangs Helen Mirren and, and fucks up or already fucked up back <laughs> from from probably having done the same thing to other folks. And then, as you said, it ends with um, yeah, it ends with um, both. Well, the surviving characters being uh, interrogated by the police, and Walken seems to have made no um, attempt to disguise the fact that he murdered this guy. Um, didn't get rid of the murder weapon. Didn't get rid of Natasha Richardson. He just killed him, banged Helen Mirren, and went about his day. And uh, and then it ends in what a lot of people are just would view as a sort of incomplete way with Welkin midway through restarting the monologue that he opens with. But I don't know that it is incomplete. I think uh, the point it's sort of making is both couples are sort of, sort of just full of shit, really. But in, uh, um, they're, they're, it's a comparison between um, two sets of sort of sort of narcissistic characters the the younger couple being kind of vacuous and ineffectual it sort of almost reminded me a little bit of a a more recent movie a danish movie called um speak no evil which you can watch on shudder which is very much about that it's just about the how far people can be pushed before they fight back in a situation or in this situation it'd be how far they can be pushed before they go hang on walken this is a bit bloody odd <laughs> uh, and then and then comparing them to to Walken who is who's just a charming psychopath and like you say he's calculating this and 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 he's equally as concerned with the sort of surface level details of things but but for but similar but uh but also very very different and more dangerous uh reasons hmm Colin, uh, Rupert Everett's character, you know, throughout the whole thing, it's very clear he doesn't want any more children. That's pretty evident. And he barely passes any interest in Mary's children, just the whole sort of flippant way he acknowledges them when she's on the phone to them. And another weird pinterism is the whole trying to get through on the phone. I think there was something which came to me the first time I watched this, and it was Don't Die of Politeness. This is the same thing, you know, watching um, Ariaster, Midsommar, um, The Menu. Uh, we were talking about The Menu early, earlier tonight, sort of, it's almost like a, a British, there's a British way of dealing with people, quite a passive-aggressive way, and I think it's more on Rupert Everett's side. What can I say? Don't die of politeness. Yeah, it is a very um, British trait to uh, to leave it, very far <laughs> before you um, put up any sort of complaint or any any sort of defense at uh, a situation in which uh, an American person perhaps might 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 start hitting people. It was a weird. Um, it's, it's probably a bit of a side thing, but on second viewing, when um, we did see the extraordinary apartment, you know the the dialogue with. Um, 
Helen Mirren and Natasha Richardson. The uh, There's lamps hanging off the wall, but there's also disco balls. And that's something, uh, that's something I only noticed the second time. It's a bit of a side, a side note, but that also caught my eye. Speaking of um, pointless side details, um, I, I, there's an explanation that um, Colin is from London, but Mary's from Bristol. And... I don't think you're from Bristol, Mary. All right, my lover. That's a very, that's a very, well, probably nearer the uh, the bridge. Probably nearer the. Uh... Probably from Clifton. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that. Were you going to, were you going to mention Bristol? You know, <laughs> Leonard Tractor. I didn't want manic at once. <laughs> All right, Christopher Walken. He 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 wants to rut my Colin. He do. <laughs> the poster. Um, I would say I'm looking at it now. Doesn't really imply Venice to me. It implies Vienna. It's got that uh, Gustav Klimt feel to it. It, it screams uh, Vienna, but it's it's a pretty poster, and it, it doesn't really give you anything of the film either. No. It just looks like a frivolity. Look, look at these tits. Look at this guy's chest. Look at it. Yeah. I think um, this pairing of films will be touching upon secretary later. The word that came to me, and I, you'll, you might poo-poo this uh, line, is, is to me is consent. Yes, definitely. Is definitely. will come on to secretary, which is a very different context and a very different experience of a film. The, the, the comfort of strangers for me was an, an enigma. I found it. I, I didn't find it crazily disturbing, but the, it, it stayed with me, and it had a certain. It left me with enough mystery to want to know more, more about Christopher Walken's character. More about Helen Mirren's character. I mean, you know, say what you will about Mirren's accent. There's a moment in it where she almost sounded Irish. There's a moment where she sounded like a Southern Belle. Um, she's meant to be Canadian. What about uh, Walken's accent, is they? I mean, that, that Italian accent is, like, not, non-existent. It's so. a me, a Christopher Walken. <laughs> mushroom, uh, ma- to mice. Oh, Mushroom Kingdom, here we come. <laughs> Me father was a big man. He eat the, the mushroom and he got the power up. The, the, the line, I'm jealous of your beauty, is heard at least once in the film. And yeah, this whole film is objectification. It's voyeurism. It's, it's taking photos. I watched you while you were sleeping for 30 minutes. I locked up your clothes. But like I was saying, the the, the, the main characters, they're, yeah, they're so sort of vacuous and ineffectual that they, I mean, this sort of almost brings them back together for a bit because, uh, you know, it's sort of given, given their relationship a bit of a spark. But, um, you know, but then they can't see how bloody weird the other, the other couple are. The, the whole the whole sort of premise does kind of seem like a conspiracy. Uh, let's not forget there's posters hanging on the walls of Venice that says um, castrate rapists and walk and, you know, pass his remark in a very flippant manner. I mean, you could say that those posters could very easily be, be named at him. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and, and despite what he gets up to and his, his obsession with Everett, he makes... Uh, several homophobic remarks and uh, the one line I noted was uh, now women treat men like children because they can't take them seriously and uh, maybe he has a point in terms of 
Rupert Everett's character just ad- acts like a big child, but then is kind of treated like one by Natasha Richardson and by Christopher Walken. I, I want to read the book. There aren't many films where I can honestly say, like, cracking film, don't really fancy reading the book. I would love I wa- to read. Yeah, I I've wonder got- what's not in in the book. I've had the pleasure of meeting Ian McHugh in two awkward encounters, at least twice. Um, he signed my copy of Saturday, still a book I've yet to read. And he also did some um, libretti, some work with Michael Barclay, uh, the composer. He wrote some of the uh, the lyrics for his work and came across as a very polite man, a very interesting man. And it's like, God, you're going to write stories this sort of dark and kind of leaving you like you need a shower. It's like, oh, very unassuming. And I, I think I'll start with Saturday and then maybe go on to the comfort... The film was also um, screened at a competition at Cannes. I don't. I just don't feel like this. This. This gets enough attention. That this was. A, I love this discovery. I really. I was so happy to share this with you. I just think it was such a, a bold, interesting film that didn't seem. To, I mean, nineteen ninety was such an interesting year for cinema. Um, Home Alone was the biggest, the biggest release of the year. I'm trying to think what won. Um, Dances with Wolves won best film at the Oscars and. This just seemed to, it feels like it went under the radar. Yeah, well, I'd never heard of it. I mean, I, I'm yeah, I, I, I'm generally a mark for Christopher Walken, so yeah, it was an interesting blind spot. Well, Linus, the real question is, when are you planning on uh, taking your girlfriend to Venice? I would love to go to Venice again. I went in 1987, but I was only six years old at the time. I remember buying uh, a, <laughs> a Joker action figure and going on a gondola, and that's pretty much it. And of course, your sisters made you go into the uh, kitchen and say, "Come here, come here." There's a bo- two bottles of lemonade. There's donuts. They lock you in your father's uh, study, and you're hurling. <laughs> Didn't do very well at the box office. From I'm the looks of it, it cost one point one point two million to make. They only made just over four hundred k. I couldn't imagine a, a sort of a public. I hate to be snobby, watching a, a public audience sitting there. I could see a lot of people walking out of this film, finding it quite dull and tedious. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it held my attention. Just, uh, just the sumptuous visuals and uh, beautiful score, attractive cast, and uh, and just the sort of intrigue and sort of unresolved sort of mystery of it all. Mm. And the whole psychosexual aspect. There's that bizarre scene where um, she says to him, "I wish I could." Um, take off your legs and arms and just have you as my fuck yeah. machine. And he says that thing, which is very similar Boxing to, um, Helena. you took the words out of my mouth. And then of course, um, his remark is very similar to the Ricky Gervais show talking about the, uh, the robot, the robot machine that has a penis and, uh, on the real, on the Ricky Gervais podcast, uh, two very surreal, um, moments in the, in the film is that conversation. There's that wonderful shot where she's sort of sat on the floor, completely stark as, and um, Everett is bent over the bed reading, reading that novel he was um, he was involved with. And that's a wonderfully one beautiful shot of many. I'm I'm also fascinated by um, Helen Mirren's character. I think there's, I think that there's so well, much. Helen's, Helen Mirren's character could or could almost seem to be the uh, the Maggie Gyllenhaal to uh, Christopher Walken's James Spader, in the, perhaps. Yes. So uh, shall we move on to discuss 
secretary from so, 2002. The comfort, <laughs> the, the comfort of Strangers has a firm recommendation from the Linus Fitness Center and the Weeping Tudor Productions. Two thumbs up, lads. <laughs> I'd say your recommendation's a lot firmer than mine, but uh, my. Well, well that, that's the only thing that's firm tonight, but. Uh... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, I just found it a really, just a really nice discovery. And I, I, I kind of knew you'd, you'd like the nasty, manipulative aspects of it. Given, given that it was made in the 90s, I was, I was kind of expecting at one point it to get nastier than it did. Interesting, interesting decision to have um, the shot of Everett getting his throat slashed, but not a single drop of blood seen because Walken is blocking and the camera turns, but only then in the next shot do we see him saturated, a beautiful Armani shirt saturated with blood. That was an interesting decision. I don't necessarily know if they got away with that, of having that, because I want to see the... It felt a little bit stagey, didn't it? I'd say so. All right, then. Moving on to 2002's Secretary. <laughs> by Stephen Shaneberg, um, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal and uh, James Spader. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal plays a young woman who discovers hidden facets of her personality as she engages in a sexual relationship with her boss, whose dominating personality asserts itself both in the office and in the bedroom. I took a lot of inspiration from this <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. No, it's the wine now. I'm, I'm, I'm being naughty, but <laughs> so, so, be, so before we go into the film itself, um, what did you think of the Badalamenti score? We've sung his praises in the first movie, um, but what about this one? This was uh, the score was forgettable. It's just kind of there, I thought. It was it's 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 very pleasant. It sounded very typical um early two thousands comedy drama, a little bit sort of six feet under, but maybe not quite as as, as sort of twee. If you'd have told me it was Battle of Menti, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Whereas with Comfort of Strangers, I could I could feel a bit of blue velvet and a little bit of um, Twin Peaks creeping dread. Um, obviously, given the subject matter, that's not so relevant in this film. But, but yeah, there was no sort of Lynchian hallmarks. Um, not even, I mean, this is quite a romantic film, but it didn't have any of the sort of um, Twin Peaks uh, love theme elements, uh, though I would have typically expected from Bad Lamenti, which... You know, it's no bad thing. Just shows that he was not a one-trick pony. I hate to say, it as to be honest, as dull as I found his score, I do have a soft spot for uh, a choice of song in the uh, 
soundtrack, which is Esquivel and his orchestra, Watsama call it. We were trying to find it for about five minutes. I was trying to remember the name of the song. It's just a very cheesy pop song from the 1960s with a really nice bra- brass sting and sort of, I'm not sure what the instrument is, but it's just kind of like pokey, electronic type weirdness going on. It was a nice choice in the start of the film, in my opinion. Well, you know, I had dropped it in at this point, but we're talking about Bad Lamenti, not whoever the fuck that was. This is the Esquivel and his orchestra hour now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did he die? He probably died a while ago. I thought, I don't know. <laughs> Although I think the we've touched upon Bad Lamenti and the scores, but we the main bulk of the film is talking about the film. I mean, as much as I love Bad Lamenti, and this score disappointed in a lot of respects. It, it was quite cheesy. The film itself is very early 2000s, in a good way, but the music itself is what really dates the film. It does, yeah. Um, Yes, Um, this feels very early 2000s. It feels like, like, yeah, very early 2000s slash late 90s, like a very particular type of film that was sort of made around this period. Uh, It reminds me of, um, like... like, uh, like Ghost World, or, um, or 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 as I mentioned before on TV, Six Feet Under, the sort of um, sort of a bit edgier, a bit more self-aware than things had perhaps been prior to then. Unashamedly sexy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Not yeah, afraid yeah. to really tackle some very saucy material. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry to interrupt. But I think the the flip side to that is. Um, it, it feels very of its time and, and like you say the music and perhaps some of the other aesthetic uh, aspects may have dated it a tad but it still for me felt like quite a progressive film I was I was wondering um, watching this with 2023 eyes whether I would have uh, you know the, the voice of the internet in my head saying oh you couldn't do a film like this these days i was like what do you think could you and should you this film is everything 50 shades of gray wanted yeah well the the, um (laughs) the uh uh, spader's character his his name is gray isn't it exactly yes that's got to be a clear i know when 50 shades is based on twilight But um, th- that's a clear. Um, I think that's a that's a nudge. That's a very clear wink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mister Gray is it? Mister Mister E Edward Gray. I feel like the sexual politics of the film. I did wonder at the beginning how, when this office relationship does begin. I was wondering, like, oh, this could really go either way. This could turn into nymphomaniac. This could turn into a very sort of loving and touching depiction that wasn't afraid to go into quite liberating BDSM, sexual liberation. And and, and it's more the latter. It, it, I was quite surprised and delighted by the film, by its its sexual politics. And it it, 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 it wowed me in a lot of respect. Yeah, yeah. Um... As you brought up, um, I think when we started talking about the previous film, um, the difference between these two situations is entirely hinges on consent. 
Well, I mean, sorry to c- cut you off. Going back to Helen Mirren's character in um, Comfort of Strangers, it implies that in some respects she didn't consent, but yeah. then she realised that she did like it. But she's disabled because of the, of the way um, Walken treats her. And that's probably one of the more disturbing aspects of the film is the fact she is locked in to a place that she can't leave and um that's one of the more darker sides of the film this is the opposite where where it is seems to be evenly handed well yeah and and it well, is the opposite in that spader's character is allowing her to break free of sort of cycles of behavior she found herself in before despite using some of the same methods that walken used in the comfort of strangers it's like i said i i, I I, I mentioned uh, Ghost World e- earlier. This is like, it's kind of like a hopeful Ghost World. Like, Ghost World seemed to be like, um, you know, you, you'll meet like, like-minded people and and uh, you can share interests perhaps, but but generally, um, even then, you probably won't properly connect and uh, and you'll just go about your your life in a Ghost World. But this well, I hope that's not true with my company with you tonight. <laughs> well, it's but uh, but but this is this is the complete opposite. This is uh, it's a very hopeful film about um, the possibility of connection between people uh, who you know might otherwise be marginalised both by society and themselves. Did you did you get? Some Lynchian vibes from the uh, set dressing. I got something. <laughs> I got a very sort of. I think in um, interviews, the actual the crew of the film actually said they were drawn to this very weird, kooky office space. They even had, apparently had lunches in there because they they were just so it was so forceful. And it's a very a lot of the aspects of that set are unforgettable. Very much of the era again, but very. Like some architect on LSD, you know, whipped up a, you know, he woke up the next day and looked, oh, well, we'll have this here, we'll have that there. And things seem to be practical, but they also seem to be almost off kilter. Yeah, well, it, that reflects Spader's character, doesn't it? He's he's very controlled, but completely chaotic in other aspects. He's kind of like, he's sort of just about keeping the lid on himself. And as uh, one of the female characters that previously uh was in maggie gillenhall's uh position says um he, he's the most closed off man i've ever known the fact that the vacancy even became available again does add some questionable aspects to him but i think that just puts an element of doubt in our brain and then we the viewer make the decision of is this actually a healthy relationship which i i'm leaning towards it is i think Again, you know the the buzzword to, the buzzword tonight has been consent. You know we've looked at two very different films, and um, it, it is it is about consent. Um, yeah. Um, well, Spader is a different, uh, very different kind of sadist to Walken's character. So <laughs> his uh, his spadism, you you might say is uh like it's based around the consent of the other character or uh, but but it's 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 the way it's just well it's the way he seeks connections with people rather than 
the characters in The Comfort of Strangers just it's a it's a surface level thing for the characters um, own fulfillment I mean look I mean I I'll you know um, mask off you know I've had uh, mask off I've had guys you know they've said to me be it a far off land of the new world or even just (laughs) even locally they will turn to me on an app or in person and they'll say to me you can do what you like to me and that's you know that, that that's a very big thing to actually say to um someone i won't go into the details so i don't i don't think linus would want to hear uh, a lot of the details but you know I mean, and, that, and that in a way well i mean a guy says that to me and that awakens something it's like well i mean you you need to talk about again you need to talk about boundaries because you say you could do anything i mean come on you need to what what does what you know i've had rosé tonight so what what am i trying to you need boundaries boundaries you know i mean even even this relationship in this film had an aspect of boundaries it was established that she wasn't typing well enough so that would lead to a, a whipping and and you know and, and it suggests that she purposely made some of the type wrong it's not suggested it's shown it's shown it's shown it's shown thank you that that she does it on purpose because it awakens something in her should have synopsized this a little clearer um the background to gillenhall's character is she's recently um been released from a uh mental health institution for uh, after uh, being sent there after uh, a episode of self-harming she cut a bit too deep um, but this is something she's done for many many years and it's alluded to that um, part of the reason might be her father's alcoholism, but but that's as far as an explanation we get, um, which I kind of appreciated because, I mean, much like Spader's character, we don't get an explanation for why he is the way he is. I mean, it, like these people just are the way they are. People sometimes just, that's just how they be. He, he's almost like his little own Roman emperor. I think there's, you know, sort of almost like a, not like a harem of eunuchs and and women and things, but it, it just, I think it's the power. What? Well, well, he's just, it like like the one character says, he's he's just he's just very closed off. Gyllenhaal's character says later, like he's suffering too. He's suffering because he can't express himself. Um, this is the only way you can, um, which is why the appearing ends up being so perfect. And I did wonder uh, initially, was the film saying that it was um, some correlation between her self-harming and her uh, submissiveness? Um, but I don't think it is. I think that's it's just him ordering her not to do it anymore is just the first sort of step in well the first positive aspect um that comes from their interactions it almost the way he says it though it almost feels you know it's an order yeah. i mean it, it if it was that easy oh i'm sure it's not yeah i mean coming from him those words were really weighty and really quite touching yeah. just to come from him 
it's I, I think the the whole thing is trauma. Do, do they imply that she was abused? I don't. I didn't really get that. Like, because um, later on, when the the father character, played by Stephen McHattie, has uh, apparently gotten sober, like their relationship seems to be be fine. When uh, let's backtrack a bit, and and <laughs> she's released from this institution, goes to stay with her parents, gets a job as a secretary with proto Fifty Shades of Grey, James Spader, James Spadist. Um, Spademeister. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Through their interactions and his uh, corrections to her letters and so on, um, it becomes apparent that they, ha- they have a, a, a bit of a sort of um, proto-BDSM dalliance, which then escalates. It has the sort of structure of a, a romantic comedy almost, where... Uh, where things look like they're going well and they're going to get together. But um, he ends up firing her when she presumably gets too close for him, at which point uh, he orders her to sit at her desk and put her hands on her desk and feet on the floor and then uh, leaves her there for three days, um, during which time the local news (laughs) visit thinking she's doing some sort of hunger strike and um and yeah and her friends and family come to support her having sort of got the gist of what's going on which is a sort of unexpected turn of events and very sort of uh sweet and uh, uh very heartening to see and it's at that point that, that her previously alcoholic father turns up is he like he's reading a story or something or is that a bible verse or something speaking of which there's a the priest that turns up in this scene as well, which it almost felt like performance art that moment, like a very, a very big protest, and she just had to. Did he? Side note: Did he tell her to sit there? He did. Yes, he did. Uh, yeah. It, it just did. Yeah, it, yeah. There's um, a, she's visited by the local Catholic priest who who tells her Catholicism has a history of self-flagellation, a great tradition, and. Uh, and who says love has to be soft and gentle? <laughs> that's a good quote. Yeah, that, that's kind of the crux, crux of the film. So, like, you know, like, human interactions can take many shapes and forms. And as we've said before, um, the key point is consent. And so long as that's there. I mean, you, you could say this is like the cinematic equivalent of is it Song of Songs. It's, uh, you know, a whole extract of the Bible. It's just a man and a woman worshipping each other. And things. It's it's so yes. It's I mean for two thousand and two, this would have awakened some things and perhaps a lot of people. I'm looking at the figures. It made nine million worldwide. Um, what did I want to say? I think you know the opening shot. I'm never forgot that opening shot where she is in the office and she is sort of tied up i'm trying to think of the word where she's tied up in the um as a pole across her back which her hands are bound to and she has the letter in her mouth and and i think that's a fantastic way to open the film it's like oh how does she find herself in this she seems to be happy this doesn't look torturous this doesn't look difficult and yeah it pulls you in it pulls you in in that first shot that first scene like oh okay this is the this is Later in the film, but but, but what? Reel me in. You, you've hooked me. Reel me in. I want to know how this conspired. So, spoilers. 
he eventually does come back and uh and they get married and presumably live happily ever after but uh or do they what do you think in the end the the uh the very last shot is that a little bit uh is that a bit uh, is there a bit of ambiguity in the look she gives the camera the final shot i mean is maggie you know looking at us is, is, Almost, is, is she giving us a wink or is we've you know the last film we covered was cruising which also nearly ended with a very piercing gaze <laughs> gaze. <laughs> gaze some gaze were pierced <laughs> in several senses bring, bring over the rosy i'm not <laughs> you can keep that in that's great well high five <laughs> thank you um <laughs> what was I saying? Piercing gaze. Piercing gaze. Cruising too. Electric boogaloo. <laughs> Maggie looks at the audience as if to say, "Like, hey, this was my story." She's, there's a, there's a, there's a, an impression of a smile. Yeah, it just made me wonder though, because by the end, it seems she's not a secretary anymore. She's a housewife. They get to do their games as husband and wife. And it seems from the brief scenes of their interactions, they they still have the same kind of relationship they had when uh, she was the secretary. Like, he's still given her bizarrely specific instructions about housework and so on, which she seems to appreciate and enjoy. I mean, an artist must regulate his life. A businessman must dominate his wife. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah, I don't know. I just wondered a bit about, look, was it like... Was she like, ah, you know, I got where I wanted, but I'd rather still be a secretary as well. Or was she just chuffed? I don't know. <laughs> I also feel like she's she's looking at us. She's looking at us as an audience to say, like, you've watched my story. Yeah, now, and now you may, yeah. maybe you've uh, broadened your horizons a tad. But, but also maybe maybe it might not be the same for you. I think a lot of people go into this BDSM fetish kink leather again going back to the last film we discussed it's not always as fantastical fantastical as you'd think it she got she he spader couldn't believe his luck because he actually managed to find a woman that was into it the fact the vacancy became available proved that he had gone through with um weren't in I don't know that they weren't into it. I just think they weren't. Or spat them up and chewed them. No, I don't, I don't think it's that either. I, I just think that I think the key was they, they couldn't... Um, well, he is another choice word. They couldn't penetrate him. They couldn't get him to open up at all. And she only just about does. But, you know, it's probably as much as he's ever gonna. Again, I think a lot more people... I've said this before, a lot more people need to see this film today. The deconstruction of it. I think most people would be... Um, there would still be cries of misogyny. There would still be... I'd love to see a two men take on this, you know, a queer. I'm trying to think of a film that, that might be similar to it, but uh, two men doing this sort of film. I mean, I'd be in the front row, but... Um, <laughs> I think this is a film less about sort of gender politics and more about uh just the dynamics of this type of relationship which is uh not a traditional thing that you see portrayed in films i mean you do wonder though it's the it's the dynamic of a relationship one person is usually in 
charge that's not always necessarily the man, not just on a sexual level, but, you know, dealing with the finance, uh, the married couple, sure, yeah. the finances, the breadwinner, looking after the children. It, it's not it, It's not always as black and white. And it'd be a lot interest, a lot more interesting to see the the gender swapped in a um, in a film like this. I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of Succession, the TV show with Brian Cox, and a quite handsome looking uh, Kieran Culkin and his relationship with one of um, one of the big daddies, uh, the Brian Cox's um, right hand women. That's a very strange sexual dynamic I hadn't seen in a TV show. The short story on which it was based by um, Mary Gateskill from 1988 apparently is very different and it, it's much more apparent in the story that the the Spader character is just using the secretary and it doesn't end anywhere near as happily. What do you think? Do you think they, I mean, not having read the original story, do you think they were right to change it? I think you can change a story for the better. Hmm, like True Romance, for example. I'd like to know what her views were on that change, really. I don't think it's a it's a it's an outrage that they've changed the story. For maybe for, you know, politically correct reasons, for maybe for the sake of the film. I I, I think in this context it it does make the film look better by today's standard. And I, yeah, I think it's better for it. I think they, I think, I think they, they were clever in changing the story and making Spader's character a lot more sympathetic and um, interesting. Yeah, well, it, I mean, they've as well as um, it following the the sort of tropes of a rom rom com, it they they've kind of turned it into a fairy tale. And um, Gyllenhaal, when she turns up for her initial interview, is wearing a, a sort of cloak style raincoat and she looks like snow white or a, a, some sort of disney character and her and spader's interactions could be like beauty and the beast or or even something like uh like like jane Eyre. Or, but you know <laughs> but he doesn't have a mad wife in the attic and doesn't need to be uh set on fire his demons yes. are the yeah the metaphor the yeah, yeah. But, but well but what are his demons though that's the uh well i just why would a man be so drawn to how did he know how did he how did he find out that that he was what he could dominating people it's a discovery a lot of people make and they love it they love that mad shit well <laughs> well cuz he's just very closed off for reasons which we're not privy to i think of course in the in the bus- the buttoned up business world you are addressed yeah. as sir and that's got its own kinky 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 aspect to well that that's sure to be a, an element of it yeah um but I don't know. As with um, Gyllenhaal's character, we don't really know why she was into self-harming. Although my worry is that the self-harming, the way they handled self-harming is like, oh, well, I, I used to self-harm, now I... Hmm. Uh, maybe that was my one reservation with the film, was the the fact she self-harmed and just, you will no longer self-harm. Yeah, okay. I, sure, I agree. It's like someone saying to her, have you ever felt not being depressed? Yeah, 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 quite. Yeah, yeah, yes, quite. <laughs> to cut the story some slack, he's giving her something to replace that. 
I mean, you talk about fairy tales. I mean, it's no. very easy to brush the wall. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is. No longer. I don't think. I don't think this is a com- complete. You know, th- this isn't a Friedkin film. <laughs> can, you, can, can you imagine Friedkin does second set? Oh, it, it wouldn't have ended so happily. <laughs> Probably both be dead on the floor by the <laughs> end, and and the mother comes back, and oh lord. <laughs> yeah, but um, for once, I'm glad uh, Billy didn't direct this one. Um, I like it how it is. It's it's not you know a complete. It's it's not a true to life depiction of of reality, but it includes some aspects of reality that you don't normally see in this sort of film. I'd recommend it. Um, yes. Maybe not with the when the grandparents are around for Christmas lunch, but uh, I remember my mum seeing it at the time, and 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 she loved it. Would not be watching it with my mum at all. World War Three would break out, you know. But you know, again, you know, I think about the relationship between the generations and sex, and you know, just conversations with my own mother about you know having a relationship and, and and there's a lot of aspects i don't think my mum would even fathom about why would people choose to be so violent with one another and it's yeah it's like that you know the word is vanilla sex isn't it about someone engaging in sex that is very vanilla is very safe yeah, and as, conventional uh, and such as what she experiences with her boyfriend she has concurrent to the oh my god i completely forgot about that yes Yes, because it wasn't. There was no spikes. There was no jadavive to that yeah, encounters. Yeah. He's portrayed as a nice enough chap, uh, Peter, um, mm. but uh, but crucially, when she's in the um, the climactic scene, um, not wanting to move from the desk, um, he takes away her consent by physically removing her from the desk which uh which she finds very traumatic and gets straight back on there when he's gone after telling him in uncharacteristically no uncertain terms that she doesn't want him having previously <laughs> agreed to marry him in the basement of a jc penley's <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need hank to go into maybe a bit about jc penney's i've heard of them but i've never really it's just like uh <laughs> it's like a primark for america i think i'd love to pop into one <laughs> looking at the wiki um it won quite a few awards mm. um yeah quite impressive actually um not a lot of awards i've respectfully heard of but the empire awards best actress didn't they get one at sundance, sundance. oh it did won the special jury prize for originality take that as you will Steven Scheinberg and also nominated for the grand jury prize dramatic it's yeah it, it's a film that has um, passed the test of time although Twitter would probably rip this oh film Twitter apart. can fuck off we, we, Linus has had his fingers burnt by Twitter on many occasions um, I think I myself have as well <laughs> um I I think sometimes you know I I review a lot of films and theatre and and sometimes I just I'm so keen to know what other people think of a film of a show of a whatever thank you um, you know tonight I was itching tantalised to know what Linus's views were on the comfort of strangers and I want to know what more people think of Secretary what 
I'd be concerned with uh, a 2023 audience is like uh, this film is all about the context of um, actions that could ordinarily be uh, viewed a lot differently. And uh, we tend to struggle these days with uh, viewing things in context. So, uh, yeah, I, I worry what uh, the Twitter audience might take from it. When, when uh, you know, this is generally a, a, a pretty positive, lovely little film. So, two thumbs up for Secretary from the Linus Fitness Centre and Weeping Tudor Productions. Thank you very much for coming tonight. We hope you enjoy Death by DVD. See you soon, sons. <laughs> so, is that real? <laughs> what? No, I just, you know, I, I was just ad-libbing, you know me. Oh, right. Well, I'm happy with that. <laughs> the wine kind of got to me a bit uh, in the end, I'm sorry. The rosé. <laughs> So, safe to say, we both recommend both films. I'd recommend The Comfort of Strangers more, but I would also recommend Secretary. Which film would you recommend for Valentine's Day? <laughs> Cruising. <laughs> Cruising. Cruising, the menu, Midsommar. No. Um... Which of the two, I mean? Oh. Mm. Mm. Secretary. <laughs> it's got to be Secretary. Um, Comfort of Strangers would be a, a bizarre film to put on Valentine's Day. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's interesting that you picked these films kind of kind of blindly, really, because you hadn't seen neither of them, had you? No, um, no, no. But they have this link with characters. Uh, it's um, it's two films which look at yeah the dark side and the good side of freak. Can I say freaky? Non-traditional relationship. Non-traditional non relationship dynamics. Yeah, which are a lot more out there now. Um, you know, yeah. Thanks to Fifty Shades of Grey. Thanks to films like Secretary. Uh, I think we're coming to the end. Um, I hope uh, Harry deemed this episode releasable. To play us out, we have a special treat. Should the powers that stream not copyright claim the shit out of us, we'll have... James Ellis, The Weeping Tudors, rendition of Angelo Badalamenti's Laura Palmer's theme. But for now, the Vichon Canal is full and the correction fluid is empty. Adios. Bye!
is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. That mighty beam broadcast from on top of the blue crystal sunshine mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. Thank <laughs> you. 